Testament reading for, is from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 through 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to rise for the reading of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel for this, the fifth Sunday in Lent, is from the Gospel of St. Luke, the, t- the 12th or 20th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that Jesus had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, grace to you in peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Imagine the scene. The venerable apostle John sits on a veranda overlooking the Aegean Sea, dictating a letter that will be delivered to congregations around Ephesus. As he dictates the letter, he sees men scurrying to the local brothel. He hears the distant roar of the crowd being entertained by gladiators as they fight with each other to the point of death. He observes worshipers of Artemis making their pilgrimage to the wondrous temple of Artemis. And he thinks about the members of the tiny congregation in Ephesus who work so very hard and who've persevered under some very harsh conditions from their pagan neighbors. But John notices that lately, that their love for God and their love for one another seems to be waning. They're showing signs of taking God's love for granted and the threats of the law lightly. God's love and their love for one another doesn't seem to be quite as important to one another as it once was. And it's with these sights and sounds and thoughts in mind that John speaks these words. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's a different world, it's a different time that John lives in. But John's words are as relevant today as yesteryear. Similar temptations and challenges exist today for God's people. And so the question that we want to address this morning is this. How can we avoid having the love of self and the love of the world take priority over our Father's love for us and our love for one another? Now please don't misunderstand. The Apostle John is not denigrating the good gifts that God gives to us on a day-by-day basis for us to enjoy, from which we derive much fulfillment and pleasure. No, we affirm such good gifts from God. The love of a friend, the love of a family member is a gift from God. 
the home in which we live, the car that we drive, the cottage that we go to, the trailer that we reside in, these are all gifts from God to us. The smartphone, our clothes and tools, a steak dinner with a fine wine, a refreshing cold beer or a clean glass of water on a hot, on a hot day, a cashmere sweater, a new camera, Exquisite paintings, riveting movies, golfing memberships, a day at the lake or an amusement park, the enjoyment of eating peanuts and Cracker Jacks at a, hot, at a baseball game. These are all gifts that God gives to us for our enjoyment and fulfillment. But the danger is always present that we can turn these good gifts of God into idols, into our first love, as the things that displace God as being our first love. The Bible is filled with such examples. I'll just give you a couple. God tells Moses to make a bronze snake and erect it on a pole so that all the Israelites who look to that bronze snake on the pole will not die due to the snake's venom because God has sent snakes among the people for their rebellion, for their idolatry. And so Moses builds that snake, he makes that snake, he puts it on a pole just as God instructs, and everyone that looks to that bronze snake lives. It was a gift from God, a gift of divine grace to his rebellious people. And yet, it's not so soon after that incident that we read in 2 Kings 18 verse 4, Hezekiah the king of Judah broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Yes, they took a good thing, and they turned it into an idol. Another good thing is that the Israelites are God's chosen people, through whom the promise of the Messiah, the Savior, is fulfilled. As God's people, as his chosen people, they receive benefits and blessings that the other nations do not receive. But tragically, they often take this chosen nation status and they misapply it, they misuse it, they abuse it, in fact. For example, they often engaged in battles with rival pagan nations, expecting to win the battle. Why? Because they thought that they were God's chosen people, that God was on their side, only to find that they'd be humiliated in defeat. And by Jesus' day, there are many, many Jews that are plagued with spiritual arrogance and self-righteousness simply because they're of the opinion that they are God's chosen people. A blessing from God, for sure. But something that they corrupted and perverted and it became their idol. These are just a couple of examples from the Old Testament of how God's good gifts become people's idols. The reformer John Calvin famously said, and I think I've shared this quote with you before, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And what is an idol? Well, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, answers what an idol is in this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you, what only God can give you. 
In other words, an idol is anything that is more important to us than God, something that we fear, love, and trust in above God. This week, as I was preparing for this message, I came upon an article by Jeffrey Curtis Poor entitled, 10 Surprising Modern-Day Idols. And in this article, Jeffrey Poor identifies 10 common blessings that God gives to us which can easily become our idols. Poor writes, this is not a list of things we should rid ourselves of totally. The point, is, uh, the point of this list is to encourage each of us to evaluate our lives to make sure that none of these things have become more important to us than God. Because even a good thing can become an ultimate thing, and ultimately that will destroy our lives. So I'm going to share with you the 10 common modern idols that poor identifies. And as I do so, I ask you to evaluate for yourself. Are any of these things that he identifies potentially your idol? The first thing that poor identifies that is a, is a blessing from God but can become our idol is our identity. With a growing number of people having little or no relationship to their creator and savior, People are forming their identity by their inner experiences. Or they're forming their identity by their abilities or their achievements or their sexuality or their nationality or the political party to which they subscribe and so on and so forth. And even as Christians, we're susceptible to this temptation to find our identity in something else other than our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Second thing he identifies is money or material things. Despite Jesus' warning that you cannot worship both God and money, Western culture has bowed to money and possessions for generations. The pursuit of money and acquisition of things is, is a guiding force for many. And you know, a person doesn't have to have money or lots of things in order to become their God, to be its idol, their idol. It's not about what you have, it's about what you long for. And so for the rich, the poor, and those in between, money can become an idol that quickly entraps them. And again, money isn't the problem. It's how we use it. It's how we view it that can become our problem. It becomes our idol, poor says, when we place our hope and our trust in money instead of trusting in God. And many have placed their hopes and their dreams and their money. The security of future rests in what they have in the bank as opposed to resting in the Lord. They trust their money and their material wealth to provide for them, to care for them, to protect them well into the future. Third thing he identifies is our jobs or our status. And jobs can become more than just simply a means to an end. For some people, poor says they define who they are. Fourth thing is physical appearance. Our physical appearance can become our idol. I mean, many people worship their physical appearance. They spend hours in the gym. They spend thousands of dollars on beautifying products and constantly think about what others are thinking about them when they look at them. And commercials abound, don't they, that promise to make us look better, younger, fitter, and it'll result in us being more popular and maybe even living a little bit longer. 
then there's entertainment that can become our idol. We're a society obsessed with entertainment. From Netflix to Disney Plus to vacations to podcasts to TikTok, we love entertainment in all of its forms. And love, poor says, might not even be a strong enough word. We're obsessed with entertainment. And then there's sex. Sex might be the only thing that we think about more than money. It's everywhere, isn't it? We can't get away from it. And for many of their lives are defined and controlled by their sex. To even question the sexual ethic in our society brings outrage and defensiveness, showing how enslaved to this idol many people are. Sexual identity, sexual practices, sex-filled lives are sacred to many. And it's their idol. It's their God. Comfort. There is an endless list of products promising to simplify and add comfort to our lives. And isn't that what it's all about? To be as comfortable as possible in our life? Well, we make our lives so much easier and so much more comfortable than at any other time in, in history. Tasks that used to take all day are done in seconds. We don't have to walk two miles to get our water. We just simply turn on the tap. That's how easy it is, isn't it? So many menial tasks are now automated. And so for many, our comfort is our ultimate goal. Then there's phones and technology. Smartphone addiction is increasingly becoming a worrying trend, writes poor. Many people simply cannot live without their phones or their online presence. It's gone so out of hand that we can't even sit for a few minutes without picking up our phone to see who might have messaged us or what the newest, newest thing is on Facebook or, or how many likes we got on something that we posted. And if you just want to see how many hours in a day you spend on your cell phone, just go to the, the screen that keeps track of the hours that you're on your cell phone and where it is that you're spending your time on the cell phone. And I think you'll be shocked by how much of your life is spent looking at a phone. And again, at the heart of this problem isn't our phones. It's not the social media in of itself. It's not any other form of technology. It's the value that we place on it that makes it the problem. When our lives revolve around how many likes we get or, or who's following us or, or we can't even sit around and, and just in silence just reflect on life without looking at our phone then you might begin to think that maybe this is our idol. The ninth thing that he identifies is family and children. He says, let me be clear, your spouse and your children are a blessing from God, but the Bible is also clear. Our spouse and our children are not to be our gods. Our life does not revolve around them. Our life revolves around God. And then finally, he identifies influence and fame. With the advent of social media, almost anyone can become famous and gain influence. All it takes is one viral video. All it takes is to have one thing placed on TikTok that gets millions upon millions of views. And suddenly you can have all these followers. I mean, our kids are living virtually in front of a camera, aren't they? 
Everywhere we go, we pull out the camera. Let's take a picture of this. Let's take a picture of that. Let's take a movie of this, and let's take a movie of that. And right from the moment that they come out of the womb, cameras abound everywhere. And all this breeds is narcissism, which is nothing more than self-idolatry. I'm sure that you can add to Poor's list of idols. But it's abundantly clear that we can take God's blessings. And remember, all of those things can be blessings from God to us. But we can take those blessings from God and we can change them into idols that control our lives. One of the problems we face is that we just don't recognize our idols for what they are. Because we don't put them up in a little, we don't put a little statue up in a little corner somewhere and bow down to it. But they're idols nonetheless. As Poor says, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, ultimately becomes a destructive thing in our lives. That's idolatry. That's idol worship. And we would all do well to prayfully evaluate our life and make sure that nothing, nothing has become more important to us than our relationship with God. Ask yourself, what is an idol in my life? To help you answer that question, poor list four questions that might help you. Where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? Where do I get my joy? And what's always on my mind? Those four questions, he says, will help you determine what your idol might be. Now, what was Jesus' highest priority? Jesus' high pro- highest priority is to do the will of his Father who sent him. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what Jesus says. Again, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What was Jesus willing to do to fulfill his Father's work? Well, St. John writes later on in the letter that I quoted from at the beginning of the sermon, he writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And again, John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Yes, the highest priority in Jesus' life was for him to do his Father's will. And his Father's will was for Jesus to love us with a boundless love, a sacrificial love, that would move him to come into this world to be our Savior and to suffer and to die on the cross to be a propitiation for our sins. 
His highest priority in obedience to his father meant that we became his highest priority in what he did here on earth. And he sacrificed his time. And he sacrificed all the material wealth of this world. He sacrificed even joy so that he might suffer for us. He did all of this so that we might have an eternal relationship with him. And we were always on his mind. You see, that's how much Jesus loves us. And as a result, we know, don't we? We know the Father and his great love for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has revealed to us this great love the Father who created us has for you and for me. And we see this great love played out in the life of Jesus and that he sacrificially gives himself for us. So as we reflect on this love that God has for us in Jesus Christ, why would we want to fall in love with the world that mocks our Father and mocks Jesus Christ? Why would we want to embrace this world that leaves us only with remorse and hopelessness. Yes, we know that the eternal Son of God loves us so very much that he has redeemed us from sin. And that he has promised us that we will live with him in the new heaven and the earth that will be created at the end of time when Christ returns in glory. So why would we wish to conform ourselves to the changing world that is passing away? We know that Jesus Christ has crushed the devil's head. As St. John writes, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So why would we not resist and fight against the temptations of the devil and the world's enticements? Jesus Christ has united us to himself when we were baptized. That means all that he accomplished for us in his death becomes ours. The forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation with God, the promise of everlasting life. And the Spirit of the Lord has nurtured a relationship with us over the years, since the day we were baptized, or since the day we were brought to faith in Jesus Christ through the power of his word. And the Holy Spirit has continued to strengthen us so that we have a resolve to resist the temptations that we experience and to live our life in honor and praise to the God who created us and to our Savior who redeemed us. And it's from Jesus' relationship with us that flows our proper relating to the world. We cannot so love the world that, that that misplaced love leads us away from the one who gave his life for us. There was a time when St. Paul had misplaced priorities where he had other idols in his life. Looking back on his life, he observes, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, St. Paul once worshipped an idol, himself. 
He was one of those that was victimized, if you will, by realizing, oh, I'm a child, I'm a son of Abraham. That makes me special. He was one of those who was convinced that he could actually save himself by his good deeds. He didn't need a savior like Jesus. As he was very much puffed up in himself and he worshiped himself in many, many ways. Under the guise of piety and worship of God, so to speak, by going through the motions. But then he had his conversion experience. Then he realized that he had made himself an idol. Then he realized that only Jesus was his savior. And he writes these words, and these were the words that were read earlier by Charlie. Indeed, Paul writes, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. I count them as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings because like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." See, everything that Paul once held dear, all of these idols that he once worshipped, these things that were priorities in his life, are now all swept aside as he places Christ as preeminent in his life. And he realizes that Christ is his Savior and Lord. He realizes now that he has gained Christ because Christ has taken hold of him. And as he has gained Christ, he now has a righteousness that is not of his own, but it is a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He now has the certainty of a resurrection from the dead to life everlasting. Not dependent on him, but dependent on the one who was raised from the dead, who is the resurrection and the life. That now becomes the center of his existence. That is now what he attains to, strives for, is always to be in relationship to Christ. Always working towards attaining the goal that Christ has called him, which is heaven-bound. And for us too, as we identify these idols in our life, we sweep them aside, we confess them away, and we ask God to forgive us of our sins, knowing that we have gained Christ, haven't we? We have Christ because he has taken hold of us when we were baptized. He takes hold of us through his word. He leads and he guides us through life. And he assures us that even as we sin, when we sin, we who confess our sins to him receive his righteousness, a righteousness won for us on a cross. And he holds before us that we have the most important thing of all, and that is everlasting life with him for all eternity, that we will be raised from the dead at the end. And so live your life with Christ at the center, with this hope ever before you to which you're focused and working towards. As we reflect on the, light, on, on the life of Christ and all that God has given to us, we realize that there's no one who loves us more than God, our Heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, God demonstrates his love for us in that he provides us with all of our daily bread. 
God demonstrates his love for us through his son's suffering and death. God demonstrates his love for us by adopting us as his children. God demonstrates his love for us again and again as he invites us to his dinner table to eat of the lamb slain for the sins of the world. God demonstrates his love for us and that he promises that we will not perish in hell, but that in fact, we will live with him forever. So my encouragement to you this day is not only to think about identifying the idols that may be in your life, but in order to cast these idols out of your life, focus on the God-given blessings that God has given to you and gives to you day by day. And as you do so, live your life for him. Make worship of the triune God and daily service to him your highest priority in everything you do. Live with the same conviction of that of St. Paul who said, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is to gain. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all our understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.